0: Well, good morning friends. I uh, realize I didn't actually introduce myself. So in case you are new, my name is Josh. I am one of the elders here at City Press. Um, I've been here for, oh, six, seven years, somewhere in there. And uh, it is a privilege to be able to bring uh, the scriptures uh, to you this morning. Today, we're beginning uh, a look at First John. Uh, we're going to be doing this kind of as a periodical series. We'll be going through First John in order, but we're st- uh, Justin will still be preaching through Romans. And so we'll be hitting First John um, on the few Sundays uh, that Justin isn't here to fill the pulpit. Um, and so it'll be a little bit um, spotty. Um, so to that end, I would encourage you, as you have time, to study the book with me. Uh, I think not only will it help kind of provide that continuity as we miss a few weeks um, before coming back to 1 John, but I think this book has an incredible amount of relevance, um, a great deal to say to he- us here at City Press in 2022. Um, and I think there will be a lot of fruit um, in your labor if you ju- uh, as you study 1 John with me. Today, as we uh, dive into this series, I wanna begin with kind of a zoomed out 30,000 foot view of this letter. In the coming weeks, we'll begin um, more granular kind of going um, by section by section. But one of the first things that you'll notice as you read through 1 John is that the progression of the arguments and exhortations is not logically linear. Whereas Paul in Romans, as we have seen, is working through 16 chapters of a magnus opum of an argument, John has a little bit more circularity in his writing. He hits on a point, and then he'll come back to that point later on to build it out, flesh it out a little bit more. And as we become familiar with John's themes and purposes, we'll come, keep circling back to those similar ideas and flesh them out in different ways and more fully. But that said, if you're anything like me, it can drive you bonkers as you try to pin down the right structure of the argument and the logical flow. I think it's ironic that Justin caped Romans for himself um, and gave 1 John to me when our personalities are exactly the opposite. Um, And as many books and as commentaries as I've read, um, so too have been the divisions and outlines of 1 John. So we're going to bumble our way through 1 John and do our best to understand it. But to the end, to that end, I think it'll be helpful to hone in on just a few verses today and really consider John's admonition and exhortation. There's a few ideas that I want to bear in mind as we look at this book, ideas which John wants to settle in our minds in this letter. And these ideas will kind of help to form the rubric for how we are to engage with this book as a whole. Ideas from which, from our vantage of 30,000 feet, will help us navigate the specifics as we break down the letter into its subsequent sermons. If you take nothing else from today's sermon, I want you to remember that this is a letter about Jesus for assurance and joy. This is a letter about Jesus for the purposes of assurance and joy. So the first thing that we'll consider today are the two reasons that John wrote this letter, the two reasons that John lays out for why he thinks it was important to lay out what he is laying out. So look with me, if you would, at 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So the first purpose in writing his letter John is that we may be assured of our salvation. Now the question becomes why why did it become why did John feel it necessary to write this to these believers to reassure them of their assurance. And as we examine 1 John, I think there's a few clues that we can garner as we examine um, and work kind of backwards to reconstruct the situation into which John was writing. In chapter 2, John writes that antichrists, that is, uh, those who are against the gospel, those who are against the gospel that John has preached to them, these antichrists went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That it might become plain that they all were not of us, and it becomes clear as we read further that these, gospel, these antichrists, these secessionists, are those who would seemingly, um, who were once seemingly a part of these, this church or these congregations to which John is writing, and they have left. And it's apparent that they are not of Christ, or in Christ, or walking with Christ. And John's critique of those who have left the church is not direct and polemical, as we often see in Paul's letters, but rather the critique is a bit more askance, a side-eye emoji, if you will. For example, in one six, 1, uh, John writes, if we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. And in eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Two, four. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's a bit like when you're eating at a restaurant and you know the kid at the table next is banging his spoon on the table, and suddenly your kid starts doing it too. And when you tell your kid to stop, and you ask, but why? You speak a little louder, maybe, and you say, "Well, we don't bang our spoons because that might disturb the other people." It's similar to what John is saying: we don't sin because we know that, we, will, uh, that we, we don't say we don't sin because we know that can't be true this side of heaven. So John is speaking against the people who have left, but he's not speaking to them. He's speaking to the people who are here in church. This is not a polemical letter. This is not a, an argument letter. This is a pastoral letter. He wants to form and shape those who are left. Now, there's a number of fallacies in the teachings and actions of those who have left the church, which we can infer based on John's critique. First, he points out that those who left don't truly know God, though they claim that they do. If we say that we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And again, in chapter 3, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So it's clear that John thinks that their claim to know God is entirely inaccurate on the basis of their behavior. They, the way they act contradicts what they are claiming. Now, second, John points out that those who left lay claim to what is called perfectionism. That is to say, uh, John writes, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John has already indicated what he thinks of the actions of those who left, but then for them to claim that if they are in Christ, they are made sinless and perfect, ridiculous. Their very actions dispute the claim to their perfection. And John will counter this perfectionism, um, this idea that we can be perfect this side of heaven. And finally, John lays out a multiplicity of errors that they make, that, that those who have left the church make about Jesus himself. He writes, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In chapter 4, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So as one commentator summarizes, from these texts, it's apparent that those who left denied that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in flesh. Moreover, they denied that Jesus came by blood. That is, they denied the importance of Jesus' atoning death. So why is that important? Well, it's into this strife, into this context, we have this group of people who are part of this church who have now left, who are teaching these things that are in obvious contradiction to the gospel that John brought to this church. John's writing these words to assure them. It seems it's as though he is writing, my friends, it's not those who left who know Christ. It is me who has seen, who has heard, who has touched Christ himself. I am the eyewitness to Christ, not them. So be assured that what we have taught you from the beginning is true and right and good. You are in Christ. You are in fellowship with God himself. And in him, brothers and sisters, you have eternal life. Rest assured. There is great assurance, my friends, for this church in this letter. And so the question becomes for us, why do we need assurance? Do you need to be reassured that the things that we have seen and heard and believed that these things are true? Do you need that assurance? I know I do. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, do you know whether you have eternal life? Do you know what it takes to know it? I recently finished a book uh, in which the author attempts to provide a solution to the uh, understanding of how we might regain uh, regain civil discourse and good faith dialogue in the court of public opinion. And I think the solution that he proposes is a bit lacking, but... I think that his um, analysis of the situation was spot on in several points. So for example, he begins by saying that the reason our discourse has gone off the rails is that we no longer have a shared set of facts and belief and no longer have a shared basic conception of the world. Building on that, he did tell us how one of the facets of our modern life is that we have so much information swirling around us, we are persistently inundated with more and more and more information. It used to be that when the pace of information was slower, we had more time to assimilate that information, to understand it, to uh, recognize, is this correspond to how I see the world, to what is true about the world, to what I believe about the world. But as our pace of information gathering has increased quicker and quicker, as we have been bombarded with more and more and more information, our capacity to actually assimilate that information, to understand how that corresponds to our worldview has diminished dramatically. On top of that, the quality of information that we receive is never assured. There are half-truths and mistruths and non-truths and post-truths mixed in with truth. And ultimately, we are left with this kind of swirling mass of information with truth indistinguishable from falsehood. And it's a state of affairs which this author called epistemic helplessness, the inability to know where to turn for truth. And this helplessness, in turn, leads to demoralization. A person who is demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell tell nothing to him, even if showered with information, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures. Is that not an astute picture of our world today? Is it not increasingly difficult to ascertain what truth is, where truth can be found, or even whether truth is possible. So my friends, it is precisely into this moment in 2022 that we must read 1 John. John says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. And if we know that we have eternal life, and if we know in whom uh, we have eternal life, if we are assured of these things, my friends, all else will fall into place or fall away in unimportance. So if assurance is the first purpose of this letter, the second purpose is joy. Look with me, if you would, at verse 4 of chapter 1. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now there's a few difficulties in understanding this verse properly, most of which we'll examine in detail next time, but suffice it to say for now that John has in mind that um, what is delineated in this letter will bring about not just the joy for John or the people that is with that are with John, but all those who are receiving the letter will receive, and their joy will be made complete. So the second pers- purpose of John's letter is that all of this congregation, that their joy may be made complete. Now again, we work backwards from John's admonitions and exhortations to have a better understanding of the context in which John is writing. One facet to have a better uh, one facet of this letter is that several times John is keen to delineate that the, the believers ought to be distinct from the world. So John 1:15, do not love the world or the things of the world. Chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. When we tie this idea with John's admonition to the believers that whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, we begin to get this picture of those who have left the church as being unconcerned with their sinfulness, being unconcerned about tying themselves to pleasure and enjoyment of the things of this world. And this proclivity, this theological deviance is closely related to what we might call from our modern age, Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism is a a viewpoint that emerged emerged primarily in the first century, um, but as a rule, it's non-doctrinal, so it's hard to kind of pin down precisely what it is. But there's a couple key components that we can kind of delineate. In Gnosticism, the first idea is that the matter, physical reality, is inferior or possibly evil. Another component of the belief is that of special knowledge or gnosis. Uh, From which we, uh, the the, the idea being that if matter is inferior and evil, then we need to work to uncover through our own efforts the special knowledge, the the spiritual knowledge that is out there um, in order that we might escape from this reality. Now, Gnosticism as a whole didn't come into its fully orb form until after this letter was written. Uh, many of the early church fathers, for example, wrote against crit- wrote critiques of Gnosticism. But it's helpful for us if we can articulate some of these infant Gnostic ideas, these proto-Gnostic ideas, uh, taking form as a mirror against which John is writing. So bearing in mind this Gnostic idea of the inferiority of the physical world, there were essentially two logical progressions from that idea. The first is to say, all of this matter, all of this physical world doesn't matter, And so in that sense, we follow the path of the ascetic. We uh, are a monk, we are recluse, we deny the things of the world, we deny the trappings of the world. The second path is rather than that of the ascetic, is that of the hedonist, to say, if all of this doesn't matter, if all of this physical reality doesn't matter ultimately, then it doesn't matter what I do. I will eat, drink, and be merry, for why, why why should I care? And it's precisely against the hedonistic Gnostic idea against what John is writing, when he commends the believers to take care against loving the world and the things of the world, to take seriously what it is that they do with their bodies. But what does that have to do with joy? Is it not simply John, an old, sober, ascetic Christian, uh, writing to say, dispense with those happy, pleasant things of this world? This world is all a droll and sober labor. No, far from it. I think that John is writing to these believers, calling to them to recall that joy is found in Christ. And if in Christ, then all happiness and pleasures of this world will be found in their right place as pointing to that joy that comes from Christ. There's a fine balance to be struck here. As with the Gnostic, it becomes easy to follow either the ascetic or the hedonist, to be the Christian ascetic or the Christian hedonist. But as the old Aussie pastor F.W. Borum reminds us, in Christianity we find the proper combination of the best of both of these. He writes, Dr. Jowett reminds us of the devout old Scotsman who on Saturday night locked up the piano and unlocked the organ, reversing the process last night on the Sabbath evening. The piano is the sinner, the organ the saint. Dr. Parker used to wax merry at the man who regarded the bagatelle as a gift from heaven whilst billiards he deemed to be a stepping stone to perdition. The play we condemn, it is anathema to us. That same play, or a vastly inferior one, screened on a film we delightedly admire." One Christian follows the round of gaiety with the maddest of Mary. Another wears a hair shirt and starves himself into a skeleton. One treats life as all a frolic. Another as all a funeral. We swerve from the scylla of asceticism to the charybdis of asceticism. We swing like a pendulum from the indulgence of the Epicurean to the severities of the Stoic, failing to recognize with the author of Ecce Homo that it is a glory of Christianity, that the, rejecting the absurdities of both, it combines the cardinal excellencies of both. We allow without knowing why we allow. We ban without knowing why we prohibit. We are at sea without a chart or compass. Our theories of pleasure are in hopeless confusion. There is no definite, is there no definite doctrine of amusement? Is there no philosophy of fun? There must be and there is. My friends, it is the glory of Christianity that it combines the cardinal excellencies of both. Is there nothing more prescient for us today? Today at a time when rates of depression and anxiety are skyrocketing, where self-harm and suicide is becoming the rule rather than the exception, where isolation and insulation and alienation are all too common, where what passes for happiness consists in binges of food or alcohol or movies or entertainment until we have to go back to work to earn enough to do it all over again. My friends, this letter is written to a church 2,000 years ago, has so very much to say to our country and our culture and our church, if we are willing to listen, do you want your joy to be complete? So we have here John's twin purposes, assurance and joy. Written in this letter into a context of a church which has undergone a painful split in which those who have left are now adhering to a dubious theology, a proto-Gnosticism, and living lives antithetical to the gospel. And I hope I've helped to begin to see how this book will prove relevant and timely in our lives as we see some of the obvious applications and necessities for assurance and joy. However, I think there's one other aspect of the anci- that ancient culture which bears a bit of consideration. Well, uh, uh, Specifically, how many of the Gnostic ideas against which John was speaking, how many of these ideas have been modified and updated and shuttled in through the back door for our present age? The pastor and author Mark Sayers helps to draw out this line of thinking about a modern form of Gnosticism. He writes, Many today no longer hold to the more transcendent forms of Gnosticism that see the soul being freed by death to continue its cosmic journey of self-discovering. Rather, the contemporary Gnosticism is more reduced, more earthbound, yet the basic schema is the same. While the early Gnostics wished to escape the world of matter to, entirely pure, to enter a purely spiritual plane, the reduced neo-Gnosticism of our day wishes to escape the world of the mundane for the world of the awesome, the stimulating, and the pleasurable. Because the early Gnostics saw matter as evil, not only did they want to escape the world, they wanted to escape their bodies to be perfected spiritual beings. Now that seems at odd with our body-obsessed culture of today, or is it? Our contemporary Gnosticism wish uh, to escape our real bodies to become perfected bodies. Through our own efforts, we can smash through the barriers and find happiness through attaining the perfect bodies we see in the imagery all around us. Ultimately, this modern Gnosticism, as Sayers describes, is a religion of the self. Even our Christian theology is corrupted and maligned to the end of this religion of self. We attend church in order that we can try to feel good about ourselves. We seek to find just the right amount of spiritualism in order to to therapize ourselves into complacency. We avoid the hard truths, the strange ideas, the uncomfortable realities in order to dupe ourselves into believing that we have it all figured out, that we have the whole world in a nice, neat box. My friends, I say this to suggest to you that each of us has a little bit of contemporary Gnosticism in our understanding of the word, and that is precisely because of that that we must carefully and meticulously examine the words that are before us. Whereas the Gnostic says that the mundane is the problem, the gospel says that sin and rebellion against God and his created order is the problem. Whereas the Gnostic says that we look inward to find the real you, the gospel says that God's revelation opens our eyes to God and the true nature of things. Whereas the Gnostic says that the amazing life is found by escaping the mundane, the gospel says that joy and meaning is found in worshiping and serving God. Whereas the Gnostic says that we move toward the perfect life through tips and tweaks and hacks and secrets of success, the gospel says, pursue Christ's likeness. Whereas the Gnostic says, it's all about you, the gospel says, it's all about God. John begins his letter this is all about God. This is a religion, a holy doctrine that is first about God. This is not about you or me. It's not about how we can be a bit better in life. It's not about how we can feel better about ourselves. No, my friends, John is pointing us to Jesus. See this man that I heard, that I saw, that I touched. See this man who was God made flesh. Open your eyes, hear the truth and believe with your hearts that you may have life true life, wholehearted, joy-filled life, which he offers to you and to me freely. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope you will join me as we, come, as we dive into this letter of John in these coming weeks, that we might see the ways in which we have been led astray, the ways in which we have attempted to create a religion and a, spiritually, a spirituality about you and me rather than about God. But my friends, this is not a book of condemnation for our error. It is a pastoral letter, a heartwarming and edifying study of Jesus. (coughs) For John wrote this letter that we might have joy and assurance. Remember, my friends, if nothing else, 1 John is a letter about Jesus that we might have joy and be assured.